Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. This is episode 17. And uh, I am your host, J.M. Prater, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Patrick Green, and a guest of ours today is Dan Ferlito. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. And today, we are talking about a myriad of different things, but before we get into those things, um, how Dan got on the show basically is we had a show where we're talking about many different things as it relates to Blade Runner 2049 and Dan called the show like a lot of people have been doing and writing in and he left us a six or seven minute I don't know if it was that long the six or seven minute voicemail four, hour, four hours a four hour <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 and a director's cut no I'm kidding uh, <laughs> voicemail about uh, some points that he wanted to discuss or wanted to make in 2049 and so we want to get to those, but uh, for no, for just because whenever we have people on the show, we want to kind of introduce them and find out how they came to love Blade Runner um, and their whole journey. So, Dan, I'm going to ask you again, thanks for being on. Like, tell us a little bit about yourself and like how you became a fan of Blade Runner. What were your first movies? Uh, yeah, sure. First off, I'd like to thank you for inviting me on the show. This is in a lot of ways like a dream come true. So I really appreciate being here and, uh, yeah, Blade Runner's always been really, really important to me in my life in the way that really deep science fiction is my favorite um, genre of movie. Um, Blade Runner in that realm is my favorite movie of all time. And uh, I think you've asked me in previous conversations, do I remember my first viewing of Blade Runner? And the answer is no, because it was probably when I was six or seven years old watching it with my dad. So I got exposure to it as a as a child and you know, probably with my dad covering my eyes for like the more violent, gory scenes. But, um, you know, as I grew up, uh, I learned to go back to that movie because I had some nostalgia to it, as we all do with a lot of things from the 80s when we were little. And um, as I grew older and started to get more into philosophy and, and into really letting these types of movies into my life and affect my thinking and the way I go about life and the way I go about questioning you know my own life and my interaction with other people just every viewing as i've gotten older has become more and more relevant more and more important with more and more emotional connection uh in my life and uh, that continues to happen to this day which we'll we'll get into and and yeah so that was kind of how i got into um blade runner over the years you know, I, I have to say six or seven is quite a bit earlier than most people that we've had on the show so far. It's uh, way before I saw it. It's it's funny uh, with with uh, with a lot of films, you know, that, that you kind of become attached to with like this lifelong thing. You see it when you're like right at that age, like that. The first time I saw Alien, I was seven. But Blade Runner, like for me, I kind of fell into by accident because I didn't know anybody that liked it. <laughs> like when I was a kid, like there was nobody who was like, hey, you got to watch this movie. You know what I mean? Um, so like, I, I didn't really get into it until I was like 11 or 12. Um, so Dan, that's, that's pretty sweet that you, uh, that you got early exposure to it. Also for, for our listeners, before we go on, um, I want to point out that I am, uh, I have a cold right now. So, um, 
if I sound like I'm like pissed off or like kind of sexy, like that's, that's, that's what's going on. So just don't be, don't be thrown off by that. But anyway, that's, that's, that's really cool, Dan. So, uh, so you say that uh, science fiction speaks to you very directly as, as it does to us. Um, what are some, what are some other influences that you have in your life from a science fiction standpoint? What, what, um, I stay with you in terms of science fiction movies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, uh, just in the same way that I like kind of dark broody music, but that doesn't mean that I'm sad or that I'm, you know what I mean? Like I, you know, I love Radiohead and I love kind of darker stuff that for some people it's a little, you know, too, uh, too, too depressing or whatever, but that's not the way I look <laughs> at it in that same way. Honestly, when I describe my favorite genre movie, it's like, um, well, dark existential science fiction, yeah. Uh, or some would call smart science fiction is exactly <laughs> what I love. So, um, you know, starting from movies I've seen more recently, I guess I could work my way back. But, um, of course, Denis Villeneuve's uh, Arrival, which was probably the first time I really made a strong connection to the director. And, of mm -hmm. course, subsequently, when I found out that he was going to direct 2049, I got super excited because I was like, well, this director is amazing. I mean, I just saw Arrival and it kind of changed my life. Yeah. And, um, yeah. so yeah, so I think looking back and of course, and I've listened to a little bit of, um, the perfect organism podcast as well. And alien certainly is, is another one. Um, well, what? And, <laughs> especially, especially the original, you know, I find that my favorite is the first movie. I have lots of respect and love aliens and what James Cameron did, but you know, there's a difference between that horror sci-fi in the first one and the action sci-fi of the second one. They, they share yeah, similarities. They're extremely and have, different movies, yeah. Right, right. Both equally well done, et cetera. And, you know, Terminator 1, Terminator 2 kind of have a little bit of that in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but, but you know, and, and those movies are great. I think the more complex, deeper movies that cause you to um, think and talk with the people that are important to you and sit around over drinks, you know, in front of a fire and just talk for hours about, how it affected your life and how it makes you think about life and, and philosophy and all that. Those are the types of movies that really drive me because it's not about just the pure entertainment of the movie and just the two hours or two hours and 45 minutes or whatever it may be that you're involved in that movie. It's that um, it's the continued conversations that you have and the points that other people bring up. And then, you know, you go online and do research and those are the movies that become, they transcend, I think the, initial vision that the writer and director and, you know, all the production had. Um, I truly believe in my heart as much as I think that in a lot of ways, Ridley Scott is a genius for the work he did with, you know, alien and the original blade runner and Denis Villeneuve is very quickly becoming my favorite director and movies he's made are, are phenomenal. I think he is a genius in his own right. I think their art and the finished product transcends what even they thought was possible in terms of how much meaning it can have to thousands and millions of people. Um, not just at the time the movie comes out, but for generations afterwards yeah. and even after they pass and aren't, aren't even on this earth anymore. I think that that, especially in the way that cinema is a quote unquote newer medium, it's been around, you know, just a little bit more than a hundred years, probably. Um, and certainly in spoken, uh, word movies have not, have barely been around that long. So, um, it's kind of a modern thing, but there's this connection to storytelling that's been around for 
thousands and thousands of years, right? As, as long as we can go back, as long as there was language, people were telling stories and passing them down generation to generation. So, of course, there are those elements. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of other movies that inspire me, I think that um, when it comes to science fiction, uh, one of my sort of conditions that I use to judge the movie is if you remove the science fiction element from this movie, you take the CGI and the effects out and you take whatever cool, you know, weapons and spaceships and all that stuff out is the writing and the directing and the acting strong. And is the story driving the movie? And if the answer is yes, then you know, it's a good movie. The science fiction portion of it is just, um, sort of the vessel that that story is getting delivered in. Um, again, you know, in the example of Arrival, which I just watched yesterday, so it's kind of fresh in my mind, um, they use a science fiction theme of like, you know, here are these aliens coming and delivering this new technology and this new way of thinking. But really the story is told from the emotional point of view of Amy Adams, the main character, who is really uh, exploring what it means to love and what it means to be brave and go into the future, even knowing that bad things are going to happen to you, all these things that people can relate to, regardless of whether you can put yourself in the shoes of someone who's meeting another life form, which is an intense thing to think about. But in the same way, you don't have to understand what it's like to be a replicant or to be a slave or to be oppressed in that way. You can still empathize with the characters of the Blade Runner films um, and I think that's what right, I connect right. with really strongly. So, um, have you read, uh, Ted Chong's, uh, story of your life, the, the short story that he wrote that arrival was based on? Uh, no, but I really want to, oh, you, you got to pick that up. It's, it's, it's yes. seriously amazing. You know, uh, hearing you talk, I was, I was saying this is uh, kind of completely, um, un unrelated to the arc of this episode, but just uh, a brief aside. Uh, I, I read a short story today that was like unbelievably interesting. And it's by Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, which uh, I actually personally didn't like very much, although I know a lot of people did. Um, and, really you know, interesting. Yeah, I wasn't, a, wasn't an enormous fan of the, of the book or the movie. But uh, he wrote the short story called The Egg. Have either of you heard of this story? No. I uh, this was This predates his like fame as an author. And, and I, I stumbled across it because he did an AMA on Reddit this morning which I always like love to participate in. And, uh, and somebody had, had shared it and it's like a link to his website. And it's this like incredible story that everybody listening to this should check out. And I don't want to spoil it. You'll, you'll read it in like four minutes, but it's a really good, very as a Mavian example of what science fiction can do as allegory and as, uh, as storytelling and as, as, as philosophy. And it's all condensed into this like little story that really makes you, uh, look at the world very differently. Like, like it's been, I, I can't stop thinking about it. So again, it's called the egg and it's by Andy Weir and, um, just look it up online. It's all over the place. It's freaking awesome. I'll check that out. Um, uh, yeah. my, my, my question, Dan, um, what, if you think about the original Blade Runner film, um, and maybe for, I can do this easily, um, but some people can't. Some people, it's more of a, a whole, an entire experience. But is there a scene in the film that you're like, this is, this is it for me. This is what this kind of embodies the film. Or is there something that touches you specifically about the original? Or is it just the whole thing? Certainly, I think the whole thing um, touches me in that way where, again, it, it makes me I, I carry it with me. I've, you know, I've heard you say that about films and, and, um, and I, that resonates with me. Um, and not to be, uh, unoriginal cause I'm sure a lot of people share this sentiment, but 
I would say that um, from the beginning of the third act of the original movie, where Deckard is in the old um, building and he's, you know, chasing Batty and you know they're they're damaging each other and fighting. Um, that climax and that buildup to then the end scene, uh, which again has so many parallels with the uh, with 2049, and and it shows um, Roy Batty in a place where he would have been perfectly excusable for him to kill Deckard or let Deckard die. Um, and then he makes that choice, that deliberate choice to save his life, even though the, the whole movie Deckard's been trying to kill him. Um, and just the expression and of course the, the very famous tears and rain speech that Rucker Howard wrote himself or for the most part, I, you know, I, I know he ad libbed or had a lot to do with the writing of those lines, which are poetic and beautiful. Um, and I think Harrison Ford's acting and you can see it in his face how conflicted he is with um, what he has been doing the whole movie, um, you know, and I thought I read a great article that I know at least Jamie has read. I'm not sure about you, Patrick, but um, that talked about how in the original movie, really the protagonist Harrison Ford is kind of the bad guy. He's kind of a shitty person. You know, he's an alcoholic and he's depressed and doesn't really live for anything and is forced back into this job. And, you know, uh, Two of the people he has to kill are women, only one of whom is actually a threat to him. The other one's running away, so he has to shoot a woman in the back. Granted, it's a replicant, right. but again, that's part that's part of the concept of what does it mean to be human, et cetera. Um, and he just really – yeah, so, so the article mentions how really Harrison Ford is the protagonist but the bad guy. And Roy Batty is the antagonist, but he's really the good guy. Um, because if you think about putting yourself in their shoes, you can actually relate a lot more to what Roy Batty is doing in terms of, um, you know, he's a slave, been treated very unfairly, kind of handed a raw deal in life, wants to, um, find out what his expiration date wants to find out if he can get more life, wants to meet his maker and ask him questions. I mean, who, who wouldn't, again, these are the big questions in life, right? Who wouldn't at, given a chance want to meet their maker and find out, why did you make me? Why am I here? Um, why do I have to die? Uh, if you love me, why do I have to die? And, um, and those are, those are those big questions. And, um, yeah, so I think that that scene and the end of the movie really just brings all those things together. And, um, I mean, it, it's unbelievable acting again, even just to shoot that one scene, for the actors to be able to carry all of that weight and carry all of that emotion and all of that struggle um, that they've been building this whole time filming the movie and deliver that on camera um, is just incredible. And so I, I mean, I, I can't think of a more poignant, you know, 30 minutes or however long that scene is in the first movie. So for me, that's the one that really affects me the most. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, you, you know, in uh, in Dangerous Days, the documentary, uh, the director of which was just on the show, which is very cool. Um, they they actually they they show the original version of this of the speech that that Rucker Hauer um, completely rewrote on the spot. Um, and I actually have it right in front of me. I'm, I'll go ahead and read it uh, just because just so you can see like how much more poetic it became when when he took a razor to it. The original version says. 
I have known adventures, seen places you people will never see. I've been off-world and back, frontiers. I've stood on the back deck of a blinker bound for the petition camps with sweat in my eyes, watching the stars fight on the shoulder of Orion. I felt wind in my hair, riding test boats off the black galaxies and seen an attack fleet burn like a match and disappear. I've seen it, felt it. It's like, it's so much more <laughs> prolix and like ridiculous yeah, yeah. as opposed to I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, it's so, yeah, it's so incredible. That, that's, that scene is just freaking amazing. Hey, what about in 2049, uh, Dan? What, 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 what's your favorite part in that? But wait, but before we get to 2049, okay, right. uh, let's, I, I want to know the build up because there are so many people, even though largely the fan community is kind of as small and as burgeoning as it is, but it's, you know, fierce. Uh, have embraced the film not everyone has and so and a lot of that began at inception it began with the, oh they're making a sequel and myself i know you patrick and all, all of us were like uh what are they doing um and then of course when they brought villeneuve on board we felt a little bit better but i want to know dan what uh when you first heard about the sequel what were your thoughts Yeah, I think uh, I'm probably not as plugged into the internet of sci-fi the way you guys are, so I don't necessarily get this news, you know, as soon as it hits the, the internet. But I do remember several years ago, kind of at first hearing rumors that they were going to make a sequel to Blade Runner. And I think I was probably dismissive in my mind saying, no, they're not going to do that. You can't do a sequel to Blade Runner. That movie stands alone. And like, you're just going to F it up. Like you're, you're not, there's no way you're going to do that any justice. Um, and then I remembered that I had read the sequel to, uh, to the book, to Android's, uh, dream of electric sheep, which I don't think the sequel is by Dick. I think someone else took over the story. Um, I'd have to look up yeah, the name of the author yeah. and it was, uh, certainly not bad. It was interesting. And, uh, I'm sure they pulled a few things from that book for, for 2049, but it was nothing mind blowing, uh, in the same way that you have to give credit where credit is due. And Dick's original book obviously gave rise to the movie Blade Runner. And that movie would not exist in its iteration uh, without that book. At the same time, I think most fans agree that Blade Runner is a much better uh, piece of art and product than the original book that Dick wrote. And again, it's not to downplay Dick's writing because I love his books and I've read a lot of them. Um, but it just wasn't as complete of a concept and it wasn't philosophically as deep as the movie became. It really transcended the material, I think, which is something that's pretty rare. I mean, how often do you hear, um, yeah, you know, I saw the movie, but the book was much better because with, you know, uh, in, in a thousand page book, if it's bigger, you can get a lot more, uh, through than you can in a movie. Um, you know, and of course, Androids was kind of a short book, so that might've helped its case. Um, but yeah, so I remember hearing the rumors and then the rumors became more real. And then I, you know, at first I heard really Scott was going to be involved and I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Um, and then of course I heard Villeneuve was going to be involved and I don't think I had seen Arrival yet. I may have seen Sicario, but I, I hadn't connected it with the director. Like I watched Sicario and I was like, oh, it's a really good movie, but I never bothered to look up the director or really do research. And so once I saw Arrival and realized that Villeneuve was going to direct the new Blade Runner, then I started reading interviews and looking into things a little bit, and um, I realized, oh, wow, 
uh, Villeneuve is certainly older than me, but um, he has the same feelings about Blade Runner that we do. He's a huge fan. It's one of his favorite movies. Uh, he understands how much that movie means to the entire community um, and to the fans. And he's very aware of not wanting to screw up a sequel. And so I knew right away just from reading those little interviews and little blurbs that he was approaching it um, in the correct way, which of course wasn't going to guarantee an artistic success, but it was a great starting point to have, to know that the director's mind was in the right place in making the movie or going into making the movie, um, already gave me a really good feeling. And then, you know, I just kind of held my breath and waited. And, um, I did watch the previews when they came out, which I'm not going to say I regret because they were good previews and didn't give away too much of the plot. I think going back, I probably would have, uh, I think it might've been you, Patrick, who didn't watch any of them until you saw the movie in theaters. Um, oh no, that was, no, I, I watched all of them. Okay. Times. That was then it was else. someone else who was talking about it. I can't <laughs> I, remember. I, I, always, but... I always try to avoid doing that. And then I, mm-hmm. and then I like, I wait like six minutes and then I give up and then I just like, right. Like, right. But luckily it was one of those instances in modern previews where they actually did a good job with the previews and don't give too much away. So Right, although although some people have said that that could be partly responsible for the slow opening weekend, which which uh, again I, I think is a completely worthy sacrifice because, uh, like the the fact that we got to be surprised by the movie was amazing, but um, I, I think people had less of an idea of what they were signing up for perhaps than they might have with a more explicit trailer. And some of those trailers too, like there was I was listening watching back the trailer and they used, um, um, dialogue from that short with Neander Wallace and they cut that they cut what he said to hell to fit into this trailer. And like he, they strung this whole sentence together that he never even said in that order. Like it was completely different to, to sell the film. And I, when I watched it again, I was like this, first of all, this line isn't even in the film. Second of all, what he's saying in it, has no relation to what happened to this in this film whatsoever. Right. Like they completely like, <laughs> crafted this false narrative to kind of misinform people. So as to keep the secret of the film. It's very, very interesting. I think, I think you're, I think that the, that's exactly why they cut it like that. <laughs> I'm picturing him like ordering dominoes or something in the trailer. <laughs> like something completely, completely <laughs> inane. We um, shall get the pepperoni. Every leap of civilization built off the back of slaves. Replicants are the future, but I can only make so many. Dan, the reason why, you know, you called in and left a message was you, you were making a specific point. And when we, me and Patrick discussed that point, we kind of jumbled it and we weren't really uh, completely, I don't think we were, we were on the same we weren't understanding what you were meaning, what you were trying to talk about, and so. Well, I, kinda... I, I mean, I, I can take I can take the uh, the bullet on this one. I, I was reading back my notes from the call, uh, because the, the, we had this delay, you know, of, of a, a week between getting the call and recording it, and uh, and my notes were were not correct, and uh, so <laughs> I ended up saying the wrong thing, uh, and then you let us know. And uh, and your point was was really interesting, and we wanted to talk about it more. So, sure. Um, I did bring up two points in that voicemail, and I think we can put the heavier emphasis, as I know you guys want to, on the totem question. Um, but maybe let me start with my other point that I made, which I've found interesting. I've talked about it with people in the uh, in the Facebook group, and I still 
really haven't gotten to the bottom of it, but it's interesting to talk about. And so um, one of the questions I had uh, about 2049 was uh, it involved, it still does involve the totem, but it's about um, Kay's memory of the horse and the progression of him um, trying to figure out where this implant was coming from and whether it was real or not. And so um, he's aware at the beginning of the movie and talking with Joshi, Lieutenant Joshi uh, that it's an implant and he was never a child and that's not a real memory, um, or at least it's not his memory. Through the plot, when he goes to Celine and you know he eventually finds out that this is a real memory and it did happen, they build the idea that it makes him think that he is the child from the memory. Um, and that's one thing I didn't understand why they were making that connection because I felt that, uh, you know, Kay gets to the furnace. Um, they have this really beautifully filmed slow scene that could have been three minutes shorter, but Villeneuve is doing it on purpose to have obviously no voiceover narration and to have this really poignant moment where it puts you, it forces you into, uh, Kay's head to think, oh, He's recognizing this place. He recognizes the smell of it, which I'm sure is very industrial and, and all that. And I'm sure it's very specific and hasn't changed that much over 30 years. And he's walking towards the, the furnace. And then, of course, he reaches in, starts to unwrap a package. And everybody watching the movie knows what he's going to find. He also knows what he's going to find because everything else matches his memory. And then he discovers the horse and has this look of shock on his face because Again, the movie's making the connection that it makes him think that he is the child from the memory. And I didn't understand how they made that connection because really him finding the horse is just more proof that this is a real memory and it happened to someone. Um, I didn't understand why they were making the connection that uh, Kay was thinking that that's what made him believe that he was the child. Um, so I found that interesting and, I, and I've had people talk about it back and forth. Um, and that, I don't think it's an error in the movie at all. I just think that they um, they decided that that's what he was going to think. And it's totally plausible that he did. But I, I found it interesting the way that whole thing broke down. Um, and then well, to I, my bigger, I, I think, oh, well, it, it, well, do you, you want to maybe touch on this one first quickly and then sure, get sure. To, to the big question? Is that cool? Sure. So sure. I, I guess I, I was thinking of it as uh, Kay knowing that this memory was implanted uh, but not not having any reason to to believe that it was any anyone else's memory that it, but if like thinking that it was something that was created for him um, was enough of a reason for him to to believe that that he was the one that had the dream in the first place or has the memory in the first place and I and I, I think that because because he he had been living with that memory it had become a part of himself and so when it was validated physically like that um, it it you know his his like internal sense memory felt like it was really him you know um so it was, yeah so i i, I think that's kind of how i approach that but wh what about you jamie what do you think about that you know it's interesting as dan was talking i was thinking about how powerful that moment is and yes it's slow and it's just brooding and again like dan said we know it's we know what's about to happen i think we know what's about to happen but i don't know if Kay knows i don't know if he really knows i think he's hoping and then he does and that then that discovery he you know you see it in his face and everything but as i was thinking about this that scene is very important to me. It's very, uh, it has a lot of re resonance. And just because of the idea of memories giving us agency, what do memories do? Um, 
Like, how do memories make us human? Like, memories have informed our entire life. You know, we we are who we are because of who we were, or or what 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 we remember of who we were, or what we've gone through, and that scene is so important because Kay had known or had believed, like every other replicant, I'm sure. Yeah, you know, I have this memory, but it's not real. He had very a very distant, um, a very distant connection with it like i don't think he he's like sure i'll tell you you know it doesn't doesn't mean anything to him and as it was manifesting you know at that point in the film when he's believing that it's real because it was a real memory it just it started to really change him it started to give him this agency that he didn't have and it, and it started to legitimize legitimize him as a person more than a replicant and it threw everything on its head of course we know that it's, it wasn't true but in that moment it was true that memory, the memory was real, and uh, again, I kind of relate it back to my own, um, my own experience in life, and I think about what's made me who I am, and the things that I've been through in my life, and uh, uh, the things that I remember, and how I hold on to memories. And I'm a very nostalgic person. I live in nostalgia in some ways in my life, and uh, with, I hold on to them, and I can't imagine living life without memories or living life knowing that the memories that I have aren't real because I'm nothing. I don't have a soul. Can you imagine that emptiness? Um, the philosophical emptiness? And so that's, I could go on about that scene for a long, long, long time. Um, just the power of memory and what it does and kind of how that weaves itself through the rest of the film and the original film as well. Yeah, it's an amazing, an amazing scene. There's, there's something in what, in what you're saying, Jamie, that I think is really, um, is, is really interesting because we know now, through uh, cognitive research and, and things, how mem that memory works in in ways that we don't think it works. Like memory is basically the constant retelling of a story to ourselves. So things that we remember are things that that we have basically reconstructed from the ways that we've interpreted the events over time and, th and that we repeat that and, and we tell the story to people and it becomes a memory that we we think of as something real like we think of it as something finite or something that is um that you can put your finger on but it's not you know because these events go away and then and it's not like they just exist physically somewhere like they're they're gone mm -hmm. but but we reconstruct them continually over time and so memories change because we are not um faultless storytellers you know yeah. and 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 but there so 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 the reason i'm saying this is there's something to be said about the the sheer force of cataclysmic inevitability in that scene and and that's that's something that i think villeneuve does better than any other director i can think of other than stanley kubrick and even then even, even then I, I i feel like he does it even better than kubrick does in some ways because in all of, of Villeneuve's movies, there's a moment where you know what is about to happen, and it's getting closer and closer and closer, and the movie time dilates. The, the there's a sense of gravity, there's a sense of weight and heaviness to it, and uh, and then revelation happens that is 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 very difficult to take. And um, just and, and you know, like sometimes it's it's at the end, like in Sicario, like the, the film kind of ends with a scene like that. But in this one, uh, it, it happens um, right in the middle, basically, at this pivotal turning point, you know, in, in the in the in the narrative. And and I love how 
how Villeneuve and Joe Walker and everybody and, and Deacons, they all, they all double down on this idea of inevitability, how like, you're, you're right. The scene stretches on for such a long time. And the, the way that Walfish and Zimmer build up the, that, that whole massive sound, you know, how, how it begins with this, mm-hmm. um, this, this, this susurrating low male choir doing this micro polyphony that sounds kind of like the music that they used in 2001, a space odyssey by, by, by George Ligeti. Um, and you, and it builds up and it builds up and there's all these swooping sounds. And then the synthesizer comes blaring. It's like very loud and it's very uncomfortable. And then Kay swipes the, the charcoal off the bottom of the horse. And by that point, he knows exactly what numbers are going to be on the bottom of that horse. And we know exactly what numbers are on, are on the bottom of the horse. And yet Villeneuve still chooses to show him doing that. And he sw- he swipes his thumb and you can see the numbers there for a second. And then it cuts into a closer shot. And then you can see them uh, in extreme detail. And it's the coming home of that incredible like I said, cataclysmic inevitability. Mm-hmm. I think that's like that that that's that's the way that I feel about that that's that shot. So I think that's a really interesting choice. And and I think um I would love to talk more about that at some point about the way that we use memory and how memory relates to things in this film and how Villeneuve has dealt with um memory in his in his work. I think it's a super cool topic. I agree. And just a, a couple more things on this on that scene. Um I think that we know what's happening um, and Kay isn't sure, but we know, you know, Kay looks for the, the date on the horse, but I don't think, I think there's this level of expectation that, but we don't know for sure. So he's showing us so that we'll know and that he'll know that yes, maybe there's a little bit of a difference, but there is no difference. The memory is real. And I, as I'm thinking about memory as it, as it relates to Blade Runner 2019 and 2049, there's a revelation with Rachel where all of her memories are false. She then becomes kind of this thing as opposed to this full person. She loses all agency and becomes this thing. She becomes a commodity. Then in reverse of that, Kay discovers memory and then becomes more sentient or more aware and he finds agency. So it's a very interesting uh, dichotomy of what's going on in the original as opposed to what's going on in this And yet the end result of that is that both of them become real, right? Yes, yes. Like both of them become actualized. Yes. Um, even though Loss. they're coming at it completely yeah. different from yeah. completely different angles. And and both of them, again, I, I don't want to overuse the word cataclysm, but that's exactly what this is for both of their characters, right? Like Kay is realizing that he could, could be the key to breaking the world apart. And Rachel realizes that she is essentially nothing and that she, she has no clue who she is. Yeah. And um and and everything that she thinks is real is in fact manufactured. And then Kay experiences exactly what Rachel Rachel experiences when she's uh, talking to Fraser in the church, saying, "Oh, you thought it was you." He then loses yes, that. Yes, yes, yes. So it's he the then, same thing. Yeah. yeah, he experiences it. So then, who are you? And that he's standing on the bridge, looking at the the shadow of his lover, um, and trying to figure out who he is. And then 
you know, his and memories that, like, who is, tell him so great who, is that, like, yeah. who he actually is, yeah. is a fucking hero, yeah. you know? Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Like, at the end of this whole incredible arc, who Kay was, was an actual hero who did the right thing because it was the right thing to do, you know? Mm-hmm. And Deckard questions that. He's, he's like, what dog do you have in this fight? Like, why did you, why, why did you kill yourself so that I could meet my daughter again? And who Kay doesn't even answer. Yeah, who yeah. am I to you? He doesn't even have to answer because he just did the right thing. And I, I just love that. I, I love how Rachel is revealed as this miraculous creation. And Kay is revealed as an actual human hero who was the like the the ultimate protagonist in that movie. I just yeah. I, I love that. And that line, who am I to you? Like, why'd you do this? And it's an interesting question because it, it, the larger question is, why do we do the right thing? Why should we do the right thing? And we do the right thing because it's the right thing. And I think that's uh, that's kind of Kay's whole journey is he's doing the right thing. It's not just about being him being human or feeling more human or finding agency or legitimacy. It's about doing the right thing. And uh, I think as a society, we're losing that. Um, we, uh, we're, we're, we're walking away from that more and more about what is the right thing and how do we do the right thing. And it's murky. It's gray. Um, when it it really shouldn't be, but it is. So that's my supposition for that. Yeah, to- totally. Well, I, I think this conversation could clearly go on a lot longer, but because this episode is already, is already getting long and we haven't even gotten to the big crux of this thing yet, uh, Dan, in the second part of your call-in, you made a point about a totem, like you mentioned. Can you can you tell us a little bit about this? Because cause this, in addition to the fact that we have now you know become friends with you and you're a great guy – and with a, with a very interesting background, uh, especially related to Blade Runner, this is really why we wanted to get you on the show when we did, because uh, it's a really cool point. So why don't you tell us a little, a little bit about, about what you noticed about this totemic um, thing in the film? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to actually talk about this. Um, so I believe, I want to say the sec. I, I watched the movie four times in theaters, um, and I think, I want to say on the second viewing, I noticed in a couple of scenes as the actual horse totem, not in the memory, but in real life, once, so after Kay finds it, there's a few close-up scenes, and I can distinctly remember now, because of course in my subsequent viewings, I watched specifically for those scenes, and there's a scene where Dr. Badger takes it, and he's examining it, and he puts it under that machine where it then goes under glass, he lowers the glass over it to x-ray it or whatever he's doing um, and then there's another scene later where Kay is handling it, I believe in Deckard's apartment and he's twirling it around. And what you see as the horse totem is rotated in front of the camera or the camera moves around it and you move towards the front of the horse, there's a very distinct, um, notch or divot or scar or whatever you want to call it, um, right at the top on the front of the horse's head, uh, in between the eyes where if that were a unicorn, that's where a horn would go. Um, and you can especially see it when it reflect, it refracts light differently than the rest of the wood. And so that's a really easy way in certain scenes when it's turning to see it. Um, and you can find stills of it online. And, and again, I'm not making it up. I, I went online. And I was like, did anybody else notice this? And sure enough, other people noticed it. And so, and, and, and I have to say, uh, when you first brought this up, uh, the first thing I said was like, can we find an actual shot of this? So that like, I, because I, I have seen the movie now nine you know, thousand times in the theaters and I didn't notice, <laughs> I never noticed it, uh, because apparently I'm just not an observant person, but, but I, but yeah, I, you, I don't you think sent, that's true. a picture of it. <laughs> Thanks. And you're right. It's a very clear 
dimple, um, or, or as I've been calling it, the the pivotal divot. Um, <laughs> which I, I think I think we should make that canon, please. Thank you. Um, <laughs> it, it's it's really it's really apparent. So so we are going to be putting up some pictures when we release this episode in conjunction with it on our Facebook page and putting them in Fields of Calantha, our discussion group. So that you guys can see it, because if, if like me, you uh, are blind, <laughs> it's very clear, and and it's and it's something that I can't believe more people haven't been talking about. Well, so it's interesting because it's very clear, but it's also very subtle. Meaning that the total film where you can see this clearly is a combination of scenes where maybe for a total of less than five seconds, I would say all those scenes added up, you can actually see that part of the horse's head and see that scar. That's and true. so it's subtle enough that only people that are really paying attention. And I think that really know the story and really know the meaning of the unicorn in, in the final cut and in the original movie would notice. And again, even I didn't notice it my first time around, you didn't notice it in several viewings. So again, it's subtle, but it's there. And so once you get past the point where you're trying to decide, did I make that up or is that really there? So you spend some time doing some research. And again, we've all done this and we've all verified that, yes, indeed, it is a real thing. Then you start to think, OK, so this isn't someone that made the prop and screwed something up. This is a very deliberate attempt to insert a plot point right. um, by the writer. And, and you know, I couldn't tell you, is it is it is it uh, is it green? Is it is it Fancher? I don't know. Is it Villeneuve? Um, that would be an interesting question to ask the production team and find out. But nonetheless, once you realize it's really there, you have to start to think right back to the history of that prop of, of the totem in the story. And so you think, OK, um, they don't talk about it very directly, but it's obviously intimated based on the other objects that are in Deckard's apartment that he carved this himself, most likely, and built it out of wood. And it was given to the child, right, because we see the memory with Celine hiding it is the only possession she had when she was in the orphanage. So um, before he left, Deckard left this little totem with Rachel to give to the child, right? Right. And and it was um, a totem that at one point was a unicorn. Well, that's the next part of it, right? So right. I, I'm saying, you know, that I'm just talking about where it ended up and, and who made it. Right, right, right. Um, then if you combine that with the fact that there used to be a horn on it, and so it used to be a unicorn, now you think, okay, obviously in the plot, they would not have that accidentally break off. That wouldn't make any sense. So Deckard made that totem into a unicorn, and then at some point before he gave it to the child, this is an assumption, but most likely he's the one that cut it off and decided to turn it into a horse before he gave it to the child. And so Jamie and I have discussed this a little bit in private, and I think that's where the interesting questions arise because you have to go back to Gaff's original origami unicorn from the first movie. Um, of course, the fact that that brings up the question of whether Deckard is a replicant or not, right? That's the big, uh, big reveal from from the final cut and and from the first movie. And so now you have to start to think, okay, what does the unicorn represent to him? What is he trying to pass on to his child who he's not going to get to meet and 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 didn't, you know, until the end of the movie? Um, and then why did he decide to change that? into a horse instead, which obviously has different connotations and is a much uh, more banal, simple totem as opposed to the unicorn, which in his life means a lot more. So um, right, I'm interested right. to hear you guys' opinions. I have my own, but I'd like to open it up because I find the discussion is pretty fascinating. 
Well, and, and before we even get into that too much, I think it's important to to recognize that the relationship of the unicorn to 2019 also evolved so much because of the subsequent cuts. Because in the original script, the unicorn is left as a threat in the actual script that they shot with. So, um, so Gaff leaves it basically like he's uh, he's throwing down a gauntlet. Um, and then, you know, since then, of course, it, it, because of the inclusion of the unicorn sequence, it's become this symbol for Deckard's replicantness. Um, but 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 there's there's other reasons I think before that there was this whole unicorn sequence why why they chose that you know and and whether that was um, <clears throat> because it was a special impossible animal animal or not is a whole separate conversation. But it's it's interesting to think about how. You know, in, in in the previous episode that we had with the interviews with Robin Bunce, um, Jamie, in, in your conversation with him, you guys touched on how part of why these movies are so fascinating to talk about is because you get basically zero resolution about anything. Like every every character could be this or could be that or could be something we haven't even thought about yet. You know, um, like that's why we've had 14 episodes, you know, on joy. You know, like, like these things are so uh, am- beautifully ambivalent. And uh, and so the it's cool that the unicorn starts from that place. The unicorn starts from a place where it's unclear what it actually represents. And then as time has gone on, it's represented different things. And now we're presented with this other four-legged, you know, quadruped, quadrupedal creature uh, that at one point was a unicorn and is now a horse. And that could mean this whole other separate litany of things. So I just think it's it's worth remarking on how it's adding to that ambivalent legacy in a really meaningful way. Yeah, there are so many, um, there's so much to this. I mean, number one, I mean, I'll just, so if you, you think about, um, uh, Kay's dream or Kay's memory, his real memory of a real human hybrid replicant, whatever Staline is, um, okay. So Deckard, we presume cuts off the horn to make that seem like just another horse, and when we are first seeing, well, him, why why are we why are we presuming that he cut it off? Well, uh, be, or someone cut off the horn to make it look like. But, but here, does me, it look? I mean, there's a dimple. Like to, to me, it looks like it was broken. Does it not? Well, that's what I mean. Broken, whatever. Um, why? Well, I think that's an important distinction. Well, well, but if he's going to cut it off to hide it or to break it off to hide it, to me, it's the same uh, thing. Maybe um, that's why. You, um, okay. So you then, but when we first see that memory of a young Staline, we don't think it's a girl. It's a boy. She's hiding. So much like the horse, everything that's unique about a girl, a girl child has been hidden. It's been it's been cut. Her hair is cut. Her hair is short. She has hair. All the other children don't in that scene. If you if you notice too, all the other children in that memory are bald except her. They look like the uh, like like they're an alien three on Fury One Six One or something. And so there's already a difference there. Um, and then of course her holding that horse. Probably back then, um, that horse was worth a lot of money, and those kids know it, so they're after it, um, and then they beat her up. So I think the hiding of the horse definitely parallels the hiding of this child. Um, right. And as I think about it, like, uh, I, I don't even know if... I, I go back to 2019, and I think, yes, when I remember when you know you see that unicorn origami i think it's at the end and you get that look of surprise and i also believe that it was kind of a gauntlet like almost like gaff saying yeah i'm up to i know what you're up to like i know you but i don't think it's hinting at him being a replicant i think uh 
it's kind of coincidental. He has this dream of this unicorn that's something different, that's something impossible, that's something that shouldn't exist. And then that plays right into who Rachel is or was. Is this something that shouldn't possibly exist in terms right, of a replicant, right. a replicant who can have a child? He doesn't but, know. But, but, well, I, I was going to say, you know, Scott's agenda has been this whole time that Deckard is a replicant, right? Like he's been trying to win this argument for 35 years. And so so when in assembling the final cut and and, uh, and the director's cut and having that shot of the unicorn in there, and then it, it, it kind of it kind of forces that whole um, origami unicorn sequence at the very end to have this separate meaning that Gaff had insight into the memories that were implanted within Deckard, right? See, I take that differently, though. I take it as Gaff knowing also what Rachel is. That yes, you've discovered okay. like so. So, when, Ga- so Gaff was being metaphorical with it. Yeah, like when when Deckard runs into that unicorn, uh, he, it's almost like yeah, he also knows that she's special. She he also knows that she's different. He's onto. He also senses what I sense. For for Deckard, it's more urgent because all of these things are happening, and now he's in love with Rachel, and he has to save her life, and all these things. So they have to go. But there's something that was happening with them. Um, knowing that something's going on here that we can of course again all of this is just supposition i don't know this is just me trying to guess but then if we move you know we move forward i'm gonna go a little bit deeper with this totem um and dan i want to get your input on this when i'm done um and i think about k discovering this thing and this horse and this memory that he didn't think was real is real and for a while again like we know he thought he was the child of rachel and deckard um, and then he finds out that he's not. Um, and then, of course, there's a separate scene where you have Joy saying, but you're special, but you're special. But the the truth of that of that whole arc right there is that despite him not being a unicorn, despite him not being woman born, he still was special. Um, and I, I think that that's a really powerful message that you don't need to be this mythical creature to be special, to have agency, yes, yes. to do the right so, thing. Some, sometimes the horses are the ones that do the most good yeah and uh the horse was hidden was hidden as a horse like i remember i guess it's just a a, a quick one-off random memory there's the the film um the last unicorn and she's hidden as a horse by a magician so when humans see her she has no horn and she looks like a mare and then people walk by her and they're like oh it's just a mare a mare and she she gets angry because she's like, I'm not, I'm no mare. I'm a unicorn, but they can't see it. But that doesn't mean that she isn't special. That doesn't mean that she doesn't have agency, that she doesn't have purpose. Um, and again, I think that's a, in my opinion, that's what I'm drawing from it. That's almost makes it more powerful to me that we, you know, um, that we, as people, as we process this, this story of 2049 and the, the, the connections to 2019, that these stories are saying that, um, despite all of these things, this, the idea of loss, the loss of memory, who am I, where do I belong? We are still special and we have to chase that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with a lot of that. And you know what, what you guys have been saying, um, kind of brings me back to a larger philosophical point that really goes all the way back to the beginning of, of the conversation of what does this movie mean to me and mean in my life? And I think even looking at the way Jamie talks about, whether the unicorn is about Rachel, whether it's about Deckard being a replicant, um, and then even famously the Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford feud over whether the character was a replicant or not. Um, you know, I've always been a little bit disappointed in Ridley Scott, to be perfectly honest, for 
not just having that argument in public, but coming out and saying, yes, uh, <laughs> Deckard was a replicant. And it's not because I disagree that he's a replicant. It's because the best art, the way these movies are, leaves ambiguity and leaves room for interpretation so that I don't think you have to decide whether the unicorn is a reference to Rachel or whether it's a reference to Deckard. It can be both. Right. Um, right. Real, real true art means something to the artist, but I think that they allow for it to mean different things to different people. And so when you have metaphor and allegory and symbolism, those things can have different meanings for different people because everybody has a different experience and different memories in their life, just like the characters. And so it's, it's a beautiful thing actually that we all interpret it differently because then we can have these conversations and have these deeper philosophical talks and you end up getting more out of the movie or the story um, than you do in a straightforward fashion. And so, you know, something that I always go back to that drives my thinking and drives my philosophy and how I walk through life is that oftentimes the answers aren't that important. It's the question that really matters. It's the examination. You know, uh, I, you know, it makes me think of, uh, Plato says that Aristotle said that the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, and I don't think that's a comment on suicide. I think that's a comment on, um, living, truly living and examining your life and trying to decide who am I? What does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean to do the right thing? What does it mean to be a human? Um, and those themes are brought up in 2019 and in 2049. And so again, back to the replicant question or, uh, whether, whether Kay was woman born or not, like we have some of those answers and some of them we don't. And I think that's deliberate because it's important that we have a discussion about it and that we relate that back to our lives. And it makes you think about what questions you want to ask about your own self and your own life and your own relationships. But the answers matter a lot less. The important part is that you stop and think and ask those questions. I think that's a really deep point that's driven home um, by the original movie and, and continued in a deeper way and with different themes. Um, that point is, is really brought forth in 2049 as well. And that's something I can really connect with. Yeah, I, I think in 2049, that's even done uh, in, a, in in a more rigorous way. I, I think that like that the the level of uncertainty in it is is like just magnificent. It's like it's like incredible, and and that's why I, like I, I have no doubt that we'll still be podcasting about this freaking movie years from now. You know, uh, both both films because because there's 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 only doorways. Uh, you know, like there's never a wall. Absolutely. Uh, I want to jump back really quick. Um, and Dan, I want to ask you after your first viewing of Blade Runner 2049, as you sat in that theater at the end, what, what was going through your head? Uh, just, just to kind of give the listeners, I know we were kind of going through kind of your journey with the original and, uh, your ideas about hearing about the sequel. What did you think about where, what was going through your head at the end of the, at the, during the credits? Um, I've heard other people talk about their experiences, and I think I, I can relate a lot to what many people felt, which is I certainly sat through all of the credits um, and everything to the very end until the lights came on, and I didn't even want to leave that theater. Had I been able to push a button and rewatch the movie right away that instant, I would have certainly done it mm -hmm. because um, 
the way great science fiction is, like Arrival and like Inception, or two of my other very favorite movies, there's no way you're going to understand all the deeper points and ramifications of the plot. Well, at least with my brain, I certainly am not going to understand that off of a first viewing. Um, you know, you, it's one of those movies that compels you to watch it again. I don't often go watch a movie four times in the theater. There's a reason why, um, not just because of what it means in my life, but because, um, again, these concepts are so deep, you're never going to catch all this detail um, and all of that in one viewing, which is proven by the fact that, again, like, for example, uh, it took me several viewings before I noticed that scar on, on the horse's head. And Patrick, you didn't even notice it, but you guys, I'm sure, noticed other things that I didn't, you know, and it's so... Yeah, I felt overwhelmed. Um, it was a positive feeling. I think that overall, I just was blown away. And I said, um, wow, I could not have imagined they would have done such a good job with this movie. And like one of these articles we've been reading said, uh, this is a movie that never needed a sequel. Um, and yet they did it and did it in such a beautiful way and in such an artistic way. And I think we've talked a lot about this. Again, Jamie and I have had many conversations about this, but the fact that, which I know this leads into a bigger conversation, but in general, just the miracle that happened in the making of this movie, where the production actually put the money into it to have the movie be done right. And they even did things that they knew were going to lose them money, like making it two hours and 45 minutes, making it rated R, making it this deeper thing that somebody watching it superficially is not going to get and maybe is not even going to like. Um, and so, you know, you read the articles where some people are trying to call it a flop, even though, you know, we checked the numbers recently and they've actually finally started to make some money off the movie. So you could call it a financial success, even if it's not a blockbuster. But it's incredible that they allowed the writing team and Villeneuve and the actors and everybody to make that movie exactly the way it should have been made. Something yeah. that was not given to Ridley Scott when he was a young director in 82 um, and only really had Alien under his belt and just wasn't that famous yet. And everybody knows the story that they just jerked him around and made him, you know, do the voiceover and do all these things that artistically he did not like, Harrison Ford didn't like. And Villeneuve got the opposite treatment, which I guarantee you he's extremely grateful for that because he knows the history and he knows that part of, I'm sure, him being allowed to make the movie the way he wanted to make it was Ridley Scott now being a powerful producer and standing behind him and saying, you're going to give this movie to him, but you're going to allow him to make it. You know, I trust his judgment and you're going to allow him to make it the right way. And so there was no guarantee that was going to happen. Um, I know from interviews with Villeneuve where he, he talks about sitting down with Ryan Gosling and with Harrison Ford, and, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but saying, look, we have to come to grips with the fact that this movie could be an abysmal failure and we can't constantly live in that fear while we're making it or we, we're going to put out a shitty product if we're constantly afraid of how it's going to turn out. We have to accept that this could be a failure and then dive, you know, go forth into the fray and, and dive into this and do just the best possible work as professionals that we could ever do. Obviously, they knew the talent was there. Harrison Ford was there. Ryan Gosling, who's proven himself in other movies, but nobody knew exactly how he was going to turn out in this part, and he did a phenomenal job, just like everybody else. Um, and it worked. They put their heart into it. They put passion into it. But again, someone with money at some level had to make a decision that they were going to allow these artists to make this work of art. And it's an incredible gift, I think, to the fan base, to generations of fans for years to come. And 
I know that if I ever get the opportunity in my life to meet Villeneuve and shake his hand or even meet someone in the production or Ridley Scott and shake their hand and I only had five seconds to say something to them, what I would say is thank you. Thank you for understanding what this movie meant to entire generations of fans and thank you for doing this sequel in an artistic, poignant, and intelligent way so that it can live on forever and be respected and really live up to its predecessor. Um, and I think we see that in the interview that Jamie did with the Weta guys, uh, which is my favorite episode so far, uh, with the miniatures. I mean, you see all of that where they're talking about, you know, we respect so much the craft of the people that came before us and allowed us to do what we do and the model making that they put, and you know, the, 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 the line that I remember distinctly from that interview is where they describe uh, the blackened out Tyrell pyramid sitting in front of the gigantic Wallace monolith, and they chose to not light it. And I think they actually did it with CGI, that they didn't use the original model for that. They just put a blackened pyramid in front of it because they wanted to pay homage to the original production and all of the work that they did and the miniature work, et cetera, et cetera, um, and show it in the plot to show that it was still there, but we were moving on into the story with these other amazing miniatures. And I think that, I mean, I can guarantee you everyone who's worked on 2049 carried that load with them, with everything they did. They knew they had to do their best work and they knew how important it was. And it's just, it really is to quote, 2049 at the beginning and what um sapper says about about a miracle like i i really think in terms of art and in terms of movie making this movie is really a miracle yeah amen man amen And it's amazing that all of the forces behind it were completely in concert with that, you know, that there was this unified sense that what they were doing was historically important, that it would not be a huge smash blockbuster, that it had to be difficult and it had to be atypical to fulfill the legacy of the original film and that they were going to make a, a unique product based on that, you know. And yeah, in, in that Weta interview, you you can hear that like that this was their dream project. This was the thing that they grew up wanting to do someday, you know. And and you can hear that when you hear uh, Hans Zimmer speak about the score, and and you can hear him saying how he was so in awe of the of the Vangelis uh, music, you know, when he was uh, you know uh, working in the '80s, and how he was able to track down the original synthesizer, which is like very hard to find. And actually get it working again and commission somebody to build a new synthesizer that could work in tandem with it um, in a digital framework. Like because the, the the DNA of the original Blade Runner has proven to be like the en endlessly inspirational to people. And it's so funny that for, for a film that was basically a failure when it came out, and not only just commercially, but critically, people did not like it very much, you know? And to see it now held in this, I mean, people meaning the general movie going public. And and to see it now, um, have having achieved this level of universal belovedness, is like it's it's really amazing, you know. Like I said in the beginning of this episode, when I was a kid, nobody 
told me to watch Blade Runner. Like I, I didn't hear anybody talking about it. Um, I had to stumble across it in a freaking a head shop in a vintage store, you know? Um, it really once upon a time was not this, this huge thing that it's become. And the fact that they were able to make something that completely stands up to it is it feels truly miraculous to me. It really does. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a unicorn. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, just to echo some of your thoughts, you know, again, the, the amount of money they spent, they, they put into it. I mean, knowing that this was a risk, you know, I know that there was kind of these lofty ideas that it, you could make more sequels, can be like Star Wars. I think all of us, the people who are really, are not to uh, denigrate the amazing intelligence of the people, the studio behind the film, but I think we all know that Blade Runner was special. And if it's going to be good, like 2049 is, or not just good, but great or end or a masterpiece, it's going to continue to kind of be that niche, small um, community that uh, continues its fervor and its love. It was never going to be a huge film. It just it wasn't. It's not the type of uh, people love loud explosions and um, flashy things. I mean, uh, we are in a time of. I mean, there's a we're in a time right now where there's a lot of great qu- content out there. But a lot of it is on streaming, like Netflix, like Hulu, like Amazon, all of these things. There's not a ton of great films coming out like there used to be. Film is commerce. Um, and you know, Marvel is commerce. They happen to be good, but they are commerce. So the idea that 2049 could be made in this kind of spherical, amazing world in and of itself and be released into the world, that type of risk, I mean, it's just unheard of. I mean, I think most studios would have been like, uh no bye you know well i mean most most studios would have would have had like a subsidiary studio put it out that would have had a ton less money and and especially from a marketing standpoint you know like like it, it would have been like a fox searchlight picture or something but this was put out by warner brothers which was you know went out a month later to put or, or uh yeah and right uh a month earlier rather to put out it you know which was like one of the biggest blockbuster hits of the entire year i mean the, like it, it, it's a major studio collaboration that um had this enormous marketing budget and a lot going on financially for it <clears throat> it was released in i don't know almost five thousand theaters or something it's opening weekend uh and um so it had a lot invested in it by people who knew that they would not be getting this enormous return on it. It was a, a true, a true legacy project. And I just, I just love that. It's just so refreshing, you know? And it feels it, special too. Like as a fan, it feels like, like a feel, gift. Yeah, it does. It feels like a gift. Absolute gift. It, it, it feels, it feels like, like we, we got this. Now I don't want to say once in a lifetime, but fuck, who knows? Maybe once in a lifetime chance to see something that somehow, after 35 years, uh, was able to actually, in in my humble opinion, be better than the original film. And the original film was like a a, a life changing film for me. You know, mm-hmm. I just I just yeah, it's just insane. Yeah. And 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 I cry every time the credits roll, every single time because and 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 I'm not crying for the characters because it's like I I I get. Like I get them at this point. Like I know the story very well. I'm not surprised by anything. I'm crying because I'm so thankful. You know, mm-hmm. like I see Denny Villeneuve's name come up, and I'm just like, oh my god! Like, it, it, it did not have to be this amazing, yet it was. You know. Yeah, uh, and I, I, I think, uh, I think 
Like I, 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 you know, and I've been talking as many of our listeners don't know. I've actually hung out with Dan. We've spent some time last week. I was up in Oakland. He, he lives about five and a half hours away. Uh, but a lot of it had to do with this film, like uh, the connection that I've made with Dan, with other people, um, people coming out and kind of almost in a way they can't explain what's happening to them. Um, and I really, and, and just speaking from myself, you know, I feel like there's this question that both films ask you, but really Blade Runner 2049 poses, who are you? What does being human mean? What does living mean? And myself, personally, I've been going through those same things. Like, what kind of life are you living? And a lot of it, really, the jumping off point for me, I mean, there were some things I was going through last year or whatever that kind of led up to this. But really, Blade Runner 2049, and this is kind of funny to say, but I think really profound art can do this. It can change your life. And uh, because of 2049, I feel like it's... I have posed those questions to myself. Um, what is living? What is life? What does it mean to be a human? Right. And uh, and I don't know those answers, but I'm searching for those answers, and it's opened a whole new door. And Patrick and I are close. Dan and I have gotten close over the course of the last three weeks, almost a month or whatever. Um, and again, it, and really, what's pivoting around all of this is this amazing movie and this amazing art. I mean, Patrick and I met because of our love for Alien in the Alien universe. Again, Dan and I met because of our love for Blade Runner. And this is what art has done. This is how art has kind of brought people close. And again, it it is a singularity. It is a miracle. And that this film is far more important than people understand. And I think we're at a time as a nation, as an American nation, certainly as a world too, because there's so much going on in the world. But certainly as a country, we are posed with this question, who are we? Who are, what are we going to do? Where and, 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 and not only who are we, but why? Yes. Yes. You know, and where do we go? Like, what, what are we, what are, what are we doing with this shit? Yeah. Like, 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 are, are we even looking each other in the eye anymore? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, are we settling for technology over the real thing? Right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that these, these two movies continue to change my life throughout my life yeah. in ways that I could have never predicted and still don't fully understand. Um, but it's a wonderful ride and it's really like, you know, it's, it's not a cheesy thing. Like they really have changed my life in a lot of ways and changed the way I look at things and changed the way I look at my relationships with other people and have changed the way I choose to spend my time and, how much I need my life to be meaningful and I need all my connections to be meaningful and how life is fleeting. And, you know, I certainly have been blessed with a longer lifespan than four years, but it makes you think, um, how do you want to spend the rest of your time on earth and how, what do you want people to remember you for and what kind of memories do you want to build? Because at the end of our lives, that's what we're going to look back at. And I can certainly tell you, that the themes and the philosophy from these movies is definitely going to flash before my eyes when I die. Like that's definitely something that's going to happen to me. Totally. Amen, man. Well, uh, thanks guys for being on the show. I I feel like that's a really good place to end it. There's so many more things like we were talking about memories earlier. And actually when I was hiking with Dan last week, we were having a discussion about the memory of hiking this, 
Mount Tam. And he was, you were saying to me, you're not going to remember this accurately. You're going to re you're saying the same things that Patrick, you were saying earlier, like you'll reconstruct it. It might not be yeah. completely accurate. Um, again, it's, it's fodder for another episode that hopefully we can do just the power of memory and, and how memory informs us as to who we are. And it can really, and memory can also hold us back at any rate. Yeah. I don't want to go on and on. Well, and, and, and also, and I know we're wrapping this up, but, but like, but the, the, like sitting in the theater, I, I brought this up a couple of episodes ago, but, but sitting in the theater watching 2049 premiere like that, that was a moment where as it was happening, I was saying to myself, this is a memory that I will revisit. Yeah. For the for the rest of my like for the rest of my fucking life. Yeah. Like yeah. for the rest of my life, yeah. I will remember the fact that I flew back from England. Uh the plane almost crashed. Do you remember this? My my plane almost crashed. <laughs> I don't it, think it, it was, almost crashed. It, no, it did. <laughs> it was a, I, actually, you know what? We have uh, somebody who has experience with this on the call right now. It was a touch and go landing because we ran out of runway at Logan and the British Airways on a seven on a 777, and we had to take off again. And like everybody's ears popped because we got up to this like crazy elevation because we were in another flight path. And it was insane. And because that happened, I almost missed the premiere that I've been looking forward to for, you know, two years. <clears throat> and um, so we circled around and then I called my wife and I was and I was like, you know, like the, we just had this like near miss. Um, like, I need you to come to the airport to pick me up so we can make it in time. And she came and she picked me up and I was like stinky. I, I've been I've been like, traveling for. <laughs> four hours by this point and i was like all i need to do is make it to this movie theater and i sat down we made it with four minutes to go uh didn't even get any snacks or anything but just like i brought the, the shit that i was eating on the airplane you know and we sat back and put the, the chairs back and watched the most amazing theatrical thing that i have ever seen in my life unfold right in front of our eyes and like I will never forget that for the, for the rest of my life you know what i mean and 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 so you're right like memory is something that we have control over in some ways because we reconstruct it over and over again. We tell ourselves these stories and telling ourselves these stories is, is going back just like, just like, like Dan, just like you were saying to, to Plato or to, to or for that matter, to Homer, or to Ovid or to, to the, the, you know, we've been telling stories since we could talk, you know, since we could sing like that, that's what we've been doing. And we tell our stories through our art and we tell our stories through our souls as well. And Blade Runner 2049 happens to be at this amazing nexus where it's a moment where we are telling, we were being told an actual story, right, narratively. And because it's so historically important, this premiere to us, we're also going to be retelling the story of that premiere for time immemorial. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it's like a complete circular narrative, beautiful event that I, I think we are just beginning to see the importance of. And I have to say, uh, I, I think we should have Dan on again soon. We should, let's do another episode uh, and let's uh, – let's Talk about let's memory. Get to the things we haven't even gotten to yet. Yeah. Let's yeah, see. I mean just to, yeah. to to play off what you're saying about that, that uh, premiere, and I know I probably talked about this on one of those episodes, but I will never forget sitting in that theater alone, unfortunately, um, but sitting in that theater – and seeing Deckard, this is of course towards the end of the film. Deckard sitting in that chair in uh, in Wallace's whatever that kind of sacred hollowed space was, and I knew that Rachel would be walking out. I knew it. I just Again, had the it's a cataclysmic inevitability. Yeah. I was talking about right. Yeah, and I just you know, then all of a sudden, yeah, it's, and I'm shaking, yeah. and you're like, There's yeah. no like there's no way. Yeah. And then she and walks from the shadows and I, my heart was like, boom, oh, boom, boom. And I was like this, this creature that I've loved all of my life, who I've 
lived with and lived in and whatever she there she is again i mean i cannot every time i've seen that i've seen i've seen the film five times the last time i saw it was with dan um i it just i can't i wish i could describe to you what that scene does to me i can't it but it brought me to tears it brought me to tears amazing all right so 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 we'll we'll, we'll have you on again dan we'll have another thanks episode. dan thank Thanks. you dan for being on thank we so really much. appreciate it thank you guys for having me yeah it's it's been an honor and i, I look forward to being on again I, I this i live for this type of discussion it just it just makes my life <laughs> awesome awesome me too. And, and again listeners write in call into the show you know how to do it by this point we're not going to say it every single time also nobody wants to hear my you know my regan from the exorcist cold voice anymore but um <laughs> but, but get, get in touch with us because that's how we met dan you know like, yeah. like we, we really listen to this stuff and we really love it and love engaging with you guys. And, uh, so, so don't stop doing that because it, it is, I mean, you know, like we send these things out into this vast abyss of the, of the internet, this, this like intangible, invisible thing. And then we make these real connections and, 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 and all of a sudden the, the unreal becomes real and we form friendships and we form these connections with people that we would never have met, you know, and it's just, uh, it's amazing. So please keep it up. Okay. And also if, if there are people who want to continue to call in and write in, we'd love to hear about what your first experience was. I know we're kind of away from, we're a, a couple months away out from the, the premiere of the film. The film is almost left theaters. There's still, it's still in a few. I would love to hear from people what were your what was going through your head when those credits were rolling the first time yeah. how did the film impact you emotionally um not just intellectually not on a story level emotionally did how did it change you so if people want to write in and let us know we can dive into that the next time we're on this episode and Dan is back and just process that and everything else that we want to talk about yeah and and and, and that's also a really good opportunity um to call in and leave a message to because those kinds of stories can be very powerful so uh, i'll give you the number again for people in the u.s it's 213-787-7894 and that's in the show notes and for people outside of the u.s if that number doesn't work for you just you can call uh or you can uh, leave a e- email sorry a voice memo to bladerunnerpodcast at gmail.com and, and we will play those on the air Awesome. Thanks again, everybody. Thanks, guys. And, uh, Thanks, Dan. That was great, man. Thank you, guys. We sent you a baseline. In blood black nothingness began to spin. A system of cells interlinked within cells interlinked within cells interlinked within one step. Fuck off, skin job. And dreadfully distinct against the dark, a tall white fountain playing with Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you long for having your heart interlinked? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you dream about being interlinked? Interlinked. What's it like to hold your child in your arms? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you feel that there's a part of you that's missing? Interlinked. Interlinked. Within cells, interlinked. Within cells, interlinked. Why don't you say that three times? Within cells, interlinked. Within cells, interlinked. Within cells, interlinked. Within cells, interlinked.
To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.